Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Thank you, Lord, for this day to hear your word, for your word is truth. It cuts to the heart of our soul. It tells us who you are. It calls us to greater things. It moves us to repentance, and it restores to us joy. So we pray, just as the blind man prayed, have mercy on us, Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. For a moment, I had a panic attack. Um, I, I know I'm doing, uh, main, my sermon is mainly focusing on Acts 19, 11 through 20. So when Max started reading the first part, I was like, he's reading the wrong passage, or I prepared the wrong message. Uh, and I don't believe in the theology of let go and let God, but I was about to practice it. So... <laughs> I hope you all have had a great weekend. Uh, It's been beautiful, a lot of things going on. This is certainly a a busy time of the year and an exciting day for things that are going to happen here. Church of the Redeemer, we have the Fall Harvest Festival this afternoon. Um, Angela Kay and I were a part of a wedding this weekend um, as well. So it's just been a a normal full fall season, and I, I pray that God is meeting you in that. We are in this sermon series on on the book of Acts called Sent Out, as you can see on the screen, and we're looking at the the reality, is that me making that noise? Sorry. We're looking at the reality that we are people who have received the gospel, and as we receive the gospel, believe it, and walk in the ways of the Lord, he sends us out on mission, for our God is mission. He's a missionary God. And to be sent out means that we become witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's the perspective of where we go. And the book of Acts explains this clearly for us. So we're taking a romp through the book of Acts. But I'd like us to see three main things out of the book of Acts. And I know it's dangerous when you're preaching to give multiple lists. So I'm going to give you three, and then I'm going to give you three in just a moment. So you can ignore this, or you can pay attention to this one and ignore the other three. Your choice. The ministry of the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul are the same ministry that we see from the Lord Jesus. So the first thing is that the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul are followers and believers of the Lord Jesus, and the things that they are doing are the things that he did. So I want you to see this on the screen. I think I have a slide. I hope I have a slide uh, for you. And it shows the ministry of... No? No slide. Okay, I don't have a slide. The slide would show uh, the ministry of Jesus and the things that he did. He healed the crippled. He gave sight to the blind. He banished out demons. He raised the dead. He performed miracles. When we look at the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul, we see the same things. Peter, in the first 11 chapters, raises a person crippled, heals a blind person, casts out the demons, and raises a dead person. 
And in the second part of the book of Acts, the apostle Peter does the very same thing. So, Paul, sorry. So you could make the case that what Luke is doing with the book of Acts is he's showing us that the ministry that we see in Jesus in the Gospels is continuing, has continued, and will continue until he comes again through the apostolic work of the church. Peter did it, Paul did it, and I dare say that we are walking in that as well. So that's the first thing about the book of Acts. The second thing is that wherever the gospel is believed and received, there is some things that happen, transformations. There is a personal spiritual heart change. For those of you in this room who say you're a Christian, remember the time you first heard the gospel and it affected your heart change. You said, woe is me, or I'm undone, or I repent. This is what the gospel does. It affects personal spiritual change in the life of those who receive it. It also impacts social change. It changes relationships and dynamics. It impacts political change. And as we'll see next week in the passage from Father Benjamin, it affects lasting economical change as well. So the gospel does not leave the systems and the people that believe it and receive it the same. That's the second piece of the book of Acts, and we see this over and over again in the stories. The third is that you see in the book of Acts, it is the ongoing work of sending through the power of the Holy Spirit the believers in Jesus into the world. First in Jerusalem, the city where they first heard the gospel, Judea, the countryside, Samaria, the place where they don't like to go, and of course, to the ends of the world. And so some theologians would say, we are Acts chapter 29. There are 28 chapters in the book of Acts. We, the followers of Jesus, are the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So those are the big three. If you take a step back and wonder what is the book of Acts doing, it's at least those three things. But particularly as we turn to chapter 19 today, you're welcome to do that, we see in the very first part something amazing happens. Something that's also a little provocative for us theologically because there are different denominations and traditions that come to this passage differently. In the book of Acts, especially in chapter 19, we see what Luke is showing us in addition to the things I've just mentioned is that God is forming one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So that's what he's up to. One unified church that drinks of the same spirit of God, that believes that Jesus is Lord and that the resurrection is true. So this is what's happening, and the way that that's happening is bringing into alignment, kind of corralling the different groups who've encountered different experiences or perspectives of the gospel. Here they are, these four groups. The disciples of Jesus. Acts chapter 2, they're in the upper room, and they meet and encounter the work of the Spirit. It says they're baptized in the Spirit, and they begin to speak in tongues. Some of us get uncomfortable with these kind of passages. The second thing we see in Acts chapter 8, 
The Samaritans received that same Holy Spirit. They believed the same gospel. John chapter 8, the, John chapter 4, in the gospel, they, they heard the gospel message by Jesus talking to the woman at the well. So now, as the disciples go into Samaria, there are people who have heard the gospel, that, but they have not received the Holy Spirit. So in Acts chapter 8, they are baptized in that same spirit. Third, the Gentile believers. Peter preaches the gospel to Cornelius. And Cornelius and his whole household are baptized. And they are also baptized in the Spirit. They receive that same Holy Spirit that the disciples of Jesus received, that the Samaritans received, and they receive as Gentiles, demonstrating that God, the gospel is for all people, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And lastly, in Acts chapter 19, we see John's disciples. John the Baptist, remember that guy. All of a sudden, they encounter followers of John the Baptist from way long ago who had heard a message of repentance and had believed that this Jesus was the Lamb of God, but they themselves had not been baptized into the fullness of the Spirit. So Paul asked them, what baptism did you receive? Well, we received the baptism of John. And he lets them know there's a greater baptism coming. It's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Lays hands on them. They're baptized in the Spirit. And what do they do? They speak in tongues and they prophesy. Now for us, I'd say arguably half the room's probably going to go, okay, where are you going with this? Just buckle up and hang on. These events provide for us the reality that the gospel is a message of truth and transformation and the vehicle for that truth and transformation is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, I would say the, the book of Acts is bringing together this church, but hear me clearly. The book of Acts is one of the few places where the baptism of the Spirit in that clear definitive language is discussed. In the rest of the New Testament, the language is around the filling of the Spirit. Why is it shifted from baptism to filling? I'm not wanting to get into an argument theologically after church, by the way, but I'm just giving you a perspective. Here's why it is. In the book of Acts, God, through the work of the gospel message, was bringing together one church. In the New Testament, the rest of the epistles, the work of the Holy Spirit is to fill the believers. So they experience that daily powerful living of the Lord Jesus in their lives. Listen to the Apostle Paul in, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. He said, and you also, he's speaking to people after the book of Acts, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of, the, of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed you were marked with him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You are marked with this same spirit that unified the, the different groups in the book of Acts. You have that same spirit at work in you by your faith. And so the normative experience for the Christian is to be filled with the Spirit. This is why the Apostle Paul says later, even in the letter of Ephesians, 
don't get drunk on wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. This is the work of God in us to enable us and equip us to live the Christian life. If you don't understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and if you are not living a life that's begging God to fill you and refill you and refill you, then your Christian life will be one of estrangement and disappointment. This is the promise that Jesus gave to his disciples, and it's coming true here in the pages of Acts. In the second part of this chapter, verses 11 through 20, we're going to see the Apostle Paul now going into ministry. Verses 11 through 20. And this is my second list. Again, dangerous to give multiple lists. Here's what I want us to see out of verses 11 through 20. The authentic power of the Spirit, the counterfeit power of not having the Spirit, and the power of transformation. So verse 11, it says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left him. The fundamental question one must come to this passage is this. Is the Christian faith a faith that embraces the miraculous? Do you embrace the miraculous? Now you may say, I'm a little skeptical about the miraculous. Or perhaps some of you, I know because you've talked to me, you've come from situations that have misused or abused the nature of the miraculous. And you've also come a little jaded. Nevertheless, either way, the text tells us that the miraculous happened. Do we believe and trust the text? Paul did extraordinary miracles. And God was at work through him, through the power of the Spirit, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Now, I know in the story of miracles, the most powerful and beautiful miracle is a person who converts to the Lord Jesus Christ, who believes the gospel. That is the highest and best miracle, that you've been transformed, transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. But what follows are the other miracles that substantiate that reality. Now, I've heard this to be true, that people would listen to Charles Spurgeon, 1870s, 80s, preacher in England. They would listen to him preach. They would write down in shorthand the message that he was giving. They would take it out and go to other churches, and they would preach that same message and people's lives were changed. So in many ways, the gospel does its work through ordinary and extraordinary means. And in this case, the gospel message that Paul is proclaiming that Jesus is Lord is substantiated by the miraculous. If you don't believe me, look at this. Mark chapter 5, a large crowd followed and pressed around Jesus. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, She'd suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse 
And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. The same things that Jesus did, the apostle Peter did and the apostle Paul did. And I would say that God can work through us in the same ways. Now, you might object. I would have as well a number of years ago. You see, we're very modern and sophisticated people. We have iPhones. In our material dominance, we think, we no longer have this sacramental worldview. We think everything is just purely explained rationally, scientifically. And it's a view that I think diminishes our ability to come to the text afresh and let it speak to us. The view of Paul's world, and I think the view of many Christians around the world, is that the world is God-charged and God-infused. So we read a verse like this and we might think in our modern, iPhone-driven, technologically savvy world, this is nonsensical. And yet the text said Paul had authentic power to do the miraculous. And that power came from Jesus. It was God-charged. Think about this. God has always used ordinary means to convey something spiritual. Water, baptism, Bread and wine convey something greater than just the elements. So when you're baptized, you can say, well, we're just putting that little person in the water. Isn't that sweet and precious? But a sacramental worldview says something amazing is happening about that water. Or to quote the famous North American theologian, Carrie Underwood, there's something about that water, right? Do we believe that or not? If we think it's just perfunctory, it's just water, then we miss the power of a God-charged, God-trusting world that he works through ordinary ways to accomplish extraordinary means. And you see, that is the authentic power that the Apostle Paul demonstrated here in Acts 19. Because the authentic marks of the gospel at work is transformation, And these miracles, these extraordinary things, substantiate that message. Now, the next verses deal with counterfeit power. And I find, we process this as a staff team, I find just reading this passage, we laughed, we scratched our heads, we wondered. So let's dive in on verse 13. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. The seven sons of Siva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? I would have ran at that point. (laughs) Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating 
that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Interesting passage on a Sunday morning, right? As an Anglican priest, I usually get one of these three questions frequently. They happen every year. I've been doing this a long time. It never fails. Here's the first question. Um, And a nine-year-old child, I won't mention their name, came up to me and said, did the Anglican church start because Henry VIII won a divorce? That's the number one question I get. Now it's from kids. It's all the way up to adults, right? Number one question. No, that's not how the Anglican church started, by the way. Second one is, why do you wear robes? Number two question. And what do they mean? Why do you wear these things and what do they mean? The third question is this. Can we participate in Halloween? (laughs) The first two questions are much easier to answer, by the way. We sit one week away from Halloween. Here's my answer. And for the record, in case you're wondering, I'm not a fan of the day nor the celebration. I think the membrane between the spiritual world and the material world is very thin. I took my kids last night to watch the movie Dune. Great movie. I do not take them to scary movies. I do not take them to watch movies about the paranormal or the occult. And the reason is this. Dune is not real. That stuff is. It's not a true story. I don't have to say to them, now this didn't happen. But the other stuff very dark. The demonic world is real. And I like to say it this way. As Christians, we should watch and be careful about what we celebrate and what we entertain ourselves with. Now, you might say, oh no, now you're going to tell me we shouldn't play cards and drink and dance. I'm not going to tell you that because usually once a month, Angel Kay and I have some friends over and we play spades. We might have a drink or two. And if the guys win, we do a dance. So I'm not forbidding those things. But what I'm trying to say is that in our culture of distancing ourselves from the spiritual world, we celebrate things that have significant spiritual ramifications. The sons of a Jewish high priest see the power that Paul has. They see it. Look what he's doing. We want to borrow that kind of power. This is why the gospel works so counterintuitively. The gospel does not manipulate. It invites. It cannot be manipulated or controlled. Witchcraft, on the other hand, is the manipulation of the spiritual realm. And it is all about personal power. And many theologians and pastors and commentators say... The rise of witchcraft is unprecedented in our nation. It is the playground of the demonic. It's why I really like the story of Harry Potter. I have my little wand for lessons today. My children told me to do this with it. Um, I like the story of it. I like the gospel subtext and themes that you can see in it. It's It's a compelling story. But it's also fanciful because it talks about witchcraft, the power to control, the power to do things, the power to to control the, the material realm. 
The problem faced by the seven sons of Siva, and it sounds like an Eagles rock group song, was that they had no power over the demon they confronted. They did not have the gospel. They were not apostles. They were not filled with the Spirit. They were not believers of Jesus Christ. There was nothing in them or their words that could cause a demon to pay them the slightest heed. And one proud demon in the story in particular seems to have been fed up with their stage show and gave them a world-class, you-know-what kind of beating. At one point in Jesus' ministry, he sends out the 70 disciples, and he tells them to go preach about the kingdom. And when they came back to report to the Lord what had happened, they were excited about being able to exercise demonic spirits. They said to Jesus, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Luke 10, 17. Jesus immediately, immediately provided perspective to them. He said this, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. See the perspective? Even Jesus understands the playground of the demonic is dangerous. What is greater authority over demons? Knowing that God is your Father and heaven is your home. Let me say here one more moment. The battle that we fight is not just material in this world. We think our problems are debt, relationships, sickness, politics, and these are real problems. And we face them and we undergo the trials of them. But they're symptoms of a greater battle, a cosmic struggle. The Apostle Paul says it this way later. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So what we want to do is we want to reduce everything to the material. Our struggle is about inequities and inequalities of relationship and culture and injustices of humanity. And again, these are real, and I'm not diminishing them. And we should pay very careful attention to them and be people who contend for truth and justice. But the aim of the gospel is not just fixing injustices, but devastating the powers and the principalities at work behind them. Here is the reality. If you want to proclaim the gospel in this world, sharing it, taking it places, you will see this battle played out. But a casual, nonchalant, I go to church, I read my Bible, I say my prayers, faith, will not expose you to this world in the same level. That's why many of us play it safe. Now I'll finish with the third power that we see at work in this text. The power of transformation. We've seen the authentic power of Paul. We've seen the counterfeit power of people who want to manipulate the spirit. And now we're seeing the power of transformation. Verse 17, when this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. What, did they, what were they afraid of? Well, they were afraid of the beatdown probably. But they also understood the power of God. So they were, their fear was more awe. 
And it says, And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they'd done. Don't miss that. When you understand the power of God and the beauty of the gospel, and you believe it, you have an about face in your life. The, the biblical world, word there is repentance. It means a change of direction. It means to walk a completely different way. 180 swing. Many of those who believe now came and openly confessed what they'd done. And verse 19 says, a number who had practiced sorcery, or what we call witchcraft, brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of their scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. They saw the sheer raw power of the demonic world contrasted with the gracious, loving, forgiving, and flourishing gospel of Jesus. And the name of Jesus became famous in that area. I think this is one of the best things about the focus of ministry and the church. We can get after causes and plights and myths that our call is to know Jesus and to make him famous and to take that gospel into the dark, hurting places of this world, our neighbors, our work, and our relationships. The simple, humble aim of the church is that you hear, know, love, and serve Jesus. And as a result of, Peter, of Paul's ministry, much like Peter's ministry, Jesus' name became more famous. Second thing that I see out of this third section is the result is a serious story of personal transformation those who were practicing witchcraft repented. The work of the gospel shakes and rattles the false claims and the false ministry of the demonic realms. When we're baptized people, we tell them when we baptize people, sorry, we tell them that the Christian has three enemies: the flesh, the world, and the devil. And it's really hard to know sometimes which one is in operation. But these people heard the message of Jesus, the glorious message of forgiveness, of truth, of real power, and real hope. And they took their scrolls and they burned them. I remember as a youth minister, there was an eighth grade boy in my youth group. And he came up to me afterwards, would never talk to me, kind of ran in the crowd, came up to me one night afterwards, waited for everyone to leave, and he said, I need to talk to you, and he told me some things going on. He said, I'm starting to believe this Jesus thing is real. Starting to believe this, this gospel is true, and I want it. And I said, well, let's seal the deal, baby. What do we gotta do here? And he said, but there's things that I'm doing that I know are not right. And he said, I've, I've gotta get rid of them. I can't have both. And so he burned stuff. I don't need to say what it was. He burned it. He'd never read Acts 19. He got rid of this stuff. He said, this stuff 
is holding me back from following you. He repented of it and he began to walk in the ways of God. Perhaps maybe even today, for us who are believers, you might be thinking, there's something I need to put away in my life. Something I need to get rid of or turn away from. The value of these scrolls says they came to 50,000 drachmas. To us, that doesn't mean much. But if we translate in that, to that in real dollars, that's about a million dollars U.S today a couple of thoughts for us to finish the preaching of the gospel is a kingdom conflicting event to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord invites a battle in the spiritual realms it does it invites a battle in our hearts it invites a kingdom conflicting reality for us to say, Jesus is Lord. As for you, Paul says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you've been saved. And that message invites spiritual battle. The power of the Holy Spirit at work in us makes Jesus famous. Not for manipulation, not for our own personal gain or our own personal egos. It's his name that we seek to bring honor and glory. And lastly, as I said this at the front, wherever the gospel is preached and believed, we see repentance. And that repentance leads to social, political, economic, and spiritual transformation. I would close with this question. Friends, where are you seeing this kind of transformation at work in your life? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage in the book of Acts. So much to think about. And it challenges our understanding of the world, of the way things are. But yet it comforts us that in this world, in the heavenly realms, You have the true control and the true power. And so we pray that you would make us witnesses by the power of your spirit filling us that we would become witnesses in our Jerusalem, in our Judea, in our Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, all for the honor and glory of your name. And we pray through Christ. Amen.